0: remind you, you are in a Bible-believing church. We're not ashamed of the truth that is found therein. For when you search the Scriptures, you're going to find that Jesus Christ is the main character and it's the salvation that He provides. That's why His salvation is called Good News. It's a gospel. And uh, because of the gospel, we want in- to encourage people to come and to spend time with the Lord, to spend time in His presence. And worship is actually when we meet together to be with Him, to meet with God, and to respond. Sometimes we respond quietly. Sometimes we respond with a little bit more excitement. Uh, today I want to challenge you to respond with the response that I see in the, in the text. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11. And uh, this, is, this is a, a beautiful passage. Uh, some people want to call it an orthodox, uh, a doxology. But as we look at today... Uh, as we draw your attention to it, I pray that it will move you, that you will not just be able to be like a, uh, like a stone or a piece of drywall that just, that's just there, that just hangs around. But I want you to be somebody that responds, somebody that is moved with compassion and with excitement. Uh, when you look at this text, you're going to find that it is inspiring. The Apostle Paul could not even hold it in. So let us now reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, uh, and we would say infallible word as it's given in the originals. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Bible, and as I said, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 11. Uh, I've been marching through this book from the back to the front, so we have taken from chapter 16. We finished uh, 16, 15, 14, 13, and 12, and now I'm looking at chapter 11. And chapter 11 is an interesting text because it transitions us from a lot of doctrine to application. And so that's why it is seemingly so important for people to respond accordingly in Romans chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, it's on page 1205. Uh, So let us look there at the particular text, verse 33. Uh, I just want to read verse 33 and let it sink in where Paul writes to the believers in Rome, Oh, oh, the depth of the riches of, and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I just want to let you think about this for a moment. You can see immediately that this text is not, it's not just the average, just informational text. It is inspirational. So let's look at again. I want to be able to begin at verse 33 and go on to the end of the chapter to verse 36. In verse 33 again, um, the apostle is responding. And you can hear him. You can almost hear him, even though he's writing this down with his hand and it doesn't make any noise. But you can almost hear him say, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, when you look at that particular text, you can hear when he finally gets to the amen, you have kind of the exhale. You've had the climax that's come to this point of saying, wow. Okay? And when you realize how exciting it is for the Apostle Paul, I want you to think about it for a moment. Here's a guy that's actually met Jesus. Now, I know, I hope that you've met Jesus too, but we have to meet him by faith. When when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us the story. Uh, He was knocked off his high horse and he was on the ground and Jesus spoke to him by name. Paul wasn't so excited at that point. He said, who who are you, Lord? He was scared and at the same time he knew who it was. He had been persecuting Jesus. Jesus. He wanted to silence anybody who had a thought about promoting Jesus. And now Jesus introduces himself to him in grand fashion. But when Paul writes about this to the people in Rome, he gets to this point in chapter 11 where he says, Hey, everybody, look! Oh, the depths! It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's amazing. And that's why he gets to this point before he says, Amen. He says, God gets the glory for all of this. But he says, Man, he says, God's knowledge and wisdom and his judgments and his ways, he says, I just can't, I can't get enough. It's too amazing. That's what this particular text is all about. And as we open up our Bibles today, I'm praying that you will have a similar type response. I don't want you to go to sleep today. I don't want you to be able to say, ho-hum. It's just another verse from that doctrinal book of Romans. I do want you to be encouraged and inspired. So let me uh, lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, take the reading of the Word, and now especially the preaching, and make it an effectual means of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to give you a little bit of context, I'm going to go ahead and read and do a little bit of elaboration for you for Romans chapter 11, because you can see that in this chapter, you can see the what is it that is making Paul so excited. We already know chapter 12 begins with, I beg of you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you will present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he says, I want you to not be like the world. Don't conform. Don't just do it because everybody else does. There's a Court says, do it because it's right. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed with a new mind. It's a renewed mind. It's really kind of cool when you realize all of that, but what precedes that is the whole chapter 11, and I'd like to read this for you and give you a little commentary as we go through, and then I want to chime in, as, as you might see, this is the way the Apostle Paul was doing it. Uh, Paul, says in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, did God reject his people? Did God reject his covenant community? No, he says, by no means. He says, Paul says, for I, Paul, am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, that little tribe, he says, for God has not rejected his covenant people. He knew them. He has already identified them. And he says, do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? And how he appeals to God against Israel, and then that tells you. But back in the day when Elijah was just a younger man, and Elijah is looking at the covenant people, says, "These covenant people are crummy people. These covenant people claim to be Christians, or they actually claim to be God-fearing, but they don't fear God. They don't even talk to God. Does that sound familiar to us? Elijah, the preacher man, was looking at it saying, God." You know, uh, I know that you have covenant people. But he says, God, you need to do something to these covenant people. And for three years and six months, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain. That's the Elijah that he says. Elijah appealed to God uh, against Israel. Verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And now they're seeking my life. It's almost like they used to go to church. They used to do these things. But now I'm the only one that goes to church on Sundays. You can almost see Elijah stirred by the fact that so many people that claim to be Christian don't act like it. Verse 4. But what was God's reply to Elijah? He says, I've kept for myself 7,000 who did not bow the knee to the false gods. Verse 5, so too at the time, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So now Paul is saying, hey, I remember Elijah and how it worked back then. He says, right now it's the same. There is a group of people who haven't bowed the knee. He calls them a remnant. Hmm. It's a smaller percentage than the whole. It's not a majority, but he says there are some people who are part of my covenant community, and they are faithful. And he said it's, it's not because they've done so many great things, but because I've chosen them. Verse 6, and it's by grace. He said if it wasn't by grace, then it would, not, then it would be on the basis of works. And he says, but it has to be by grace, which is undeserved favor. God just did it because God wanted to. Then he says in verse 7, so do you get it? Maybe not. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect have obtained it. In other words, the ones that God has extended grace to, they have obtained it, and the the rest were hardened. And that's why he quotes the scripture there. God gave them a spirit of stupor that their eyes would not see and their ears would not hear even to this day. Then he quotes David and he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a block of retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and and bend their backs forever. Wow. Paul is writing to these believers in Rome and he says, hey, there's a lot of people who are faking Christianity. There's folks who claim to be their God. They're on God's team and they're not. They can't see him they can't hear him, they're not even paying attention to His word. Verse seven, or verse 11 of 11. This is where we're getting to the, to the runway to our text. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's an interesting. Did they stumble in order so that they could end up on the ground? And he says, "No, you're not getting it. He says, let me explain it. So he says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now that's the key word there, the word salvation, that God is saying that God's plan to bring salvation is coming and nothing is stopping it. Sounds a little bit like when Jesus told the disciples that he's going to build his ecclesia, his church, and nothing is going to stop it accomplishing its purpose. Now, in verse 12, he says, Now, if their trespass means the riches for the world, and if, and if their failure means the riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, Paul is helping them to think a little bit from a higher elevation of faith. He says, hey, you're, you're looking at people that are faking it. And he says, when they come around, when God extends his grace to them, and he takes their hardened heart and he gives them a heart of, of clay, when he gives them some softness, uh, just like we were talking last week in Malachi, when he turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their, father, to their fathers. When God takes the heart of stone and changes it, wow, wow. He said, it's going to be really cool how it all works together. And he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, which is true for almost everybody in this room, people who are not descendants of Abraham lineage-wise. He says, I'm speaking to you inasmuch then as I am an apostle to you. Uh, I magnify this ministry in order somehow that my fellow Jews would be jealous. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from dead? And he, he uses the illustration of some dough if you're making some bread. He said if, if a part of it is, is holy, then the whole part is holy. And then he makes in verse 17 an illustration with branches and about a wild, a wild a branch and how it's grafted in. And those of you that work with plants, you know this a little bit better. But what it is is saying that God is not surprised. He understands what it means to have a holy people and how to preserve that. He says in verse 19, he says branches were broken off so then then they would be grafted in. Do you hear how God is going to save people? They used to be afar off, they were broken off and now he's taking them and connecting them to his great salvation. He says verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of unbelief but you stand fast through faith so do not become proud but rather have fear of God, marvel at God. He says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and also the severity of God. Yes, God is kind in this salvation. But notice the severity in this salvation. He says... um, Notice this, that, uh, that severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even this, verse 23, and even they, if they do not, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for, in. for God has the power to graft them in if he so chooses. Now, when you jump down to verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be confused by all this talk about about dough and about branches and about uh, about people rejecting and all this kind of uh, remnant stuff. He says, let me tell you plain and clear. Lest you be wise in your own sight, unless you try to create it from your own understanding. He says, I need to reveal this to you. I do not want you to remain unaware, you brothers in Christ, you sisters in Christ. I don't want you to just... Pretend or try to assume. He says, there is a partial hardening that has come upon the Jewish community. They really don't get it. But this is this hardening, this inability of their hearts to receive Christ, uh, is, he says, it is a short time. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now Paul goes on to say, verse 26, and in this way, God is going to finish his salvation plan. And then he quotes two passages. In verse 26, he's quoting from uh, Isaiah. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Isaiah wrote about this about 700 years before Christ. So roughly, it's it's almost 800 years ago. Then he quotes from, uh, in verse 27, he quotes from Jeremiah, uh, which goes back even a little, uh, uh, I guess, a similar time frame. And he says that he's going to make a covenant with his people ...to take away their sins. Jeremiah 31. Part of the reason why our church is named New Covenant. Because God entered into a, a promise... ...made with blood. An oath that he would save people. Now, he's talking about this great salvation. So in verse 28, but he says... ...now as regards to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ... ...he says these people that claim to be godly... ...or that have this heritage uh, with the Jews... ...he says they are currently our enemies... Sometimes you want to just shake your head and say, really? Yeah. There's people that claim to be religious, but they're not advancing Jesus. They're advancing something else. He says, currently, they are enemies for your sakes, but in relation to God's salvation, and he calls this his electing salvation, these same people are still loved. God has not erased them or canceled them. He says, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. In other words, God had a plan way, way back there with Abraham, and he's not going to forget his covenant to Abraham. And verse 29, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They can't be changed. They're they're firm. They're just like putting concrete. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now... You have received mercy from God because of their disobedience. Now there's a preacher coming to talk to you. Verse 31, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by God's mercy would be shown to them. Now verse 32, for God has consigned, or he has labeled it properly, everybody is disobedient. Do you feel the rubber meeting the road? Paul is saying, hey, you may be a Jew or you may not be a Jew. You may be one of the Gentiles talking about those Jews. He says, whatever camp you find yourself in, the same dilemma is there. We're disobedient. And then he shifts gears and he says, but God is going to have mercy. Mercy. This is a part of the salvation of God that he'll extend extend mercy to all kinds of people. And this is where he says, oh, This is amazing. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And then he goes on to say that people haven't been able to help God. Because he says, for from Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things. Glory is needing to continue throughout the ages... And never end and that's where he says amen so you can almost hear that the apostle there breaks into a song almost like this praise god from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly host praise father son and holy Ghost, And then two, we normally say, Amen. Now, I don't know if you're as excited as he was. And maybe that song doesn't inspire you, the, the same kind of uh, inspiration that he has. But uh, this is where we are. And so if you follow along with me, I, I ask the question, what would make you praise God? What would make you praise God? When would you break into a doxology? What would stir your soul? Now, some, like uh, I got a text message today, and boy, there was praise to God when uh, one of our church members heard the voice of his own son after a serious accident and a lengthy, lengthy surgery. Praise God, he says. Now, what about what would it take for you? Would it be if a prayer was answered uh, or if your agenda came on God's timetable? You know, if, if, if this happens just the way I planned it and, and this all came together, I would say, praise God. I might even stand up. I might even lift my hands up. Oh, is that, is that allowable for Presbyterians? Maybe, maybe you would praise God if you got something you didn't deserve. Some kind of coincidence happens. And you're like, wow, I didn't expect that. Praise God, it worked out. Sometimes we think that uh, we want to praise God because he gives us what we ask for, an answer to prayer. Sometimes we think that we need to praise God because when we put our best effort in, it came to pass, and so we're like, well, praise God, he didn't get in the way of that. But a lot of times we end up praising God for grace when he gives us stuff that we can't deserve and we couldn't get on our own. A lot of times we go to God When we're in those crisis moments, when we can't fix it, when we have to depend on some doctor or some drug, or when we have to uh, go the extra mile, or we just have to just do it anyway, even though we have no guarantee it's going to work out. To God be the glory. That, those words tend to only flow off of our mouths when we hear the, uh, the the piano or the organ or whatever instrument you have that can play that music. When they start playing, oh, it's easy to sing it then. But do you really have the glory of God flowing from your lips because it's coming out of your heart and soul? There was a moment in Bethlehem, or I should say, in the fields outside of Bethlehem, and I made several trips over there. And I, the first time I got there, I was amazed. We looked up into the sky area, and of course, in, in that evening, it just looked like the sky, the same kind of sky you see here. But back when Jesus was born, on that very, very uh, sublime day, the angels showed up to the shepherds, and they say, For you, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story. The angels, they said, Check, got that message delivered, and they went back to heaven, right? No, if any of you have sung Handel's Messiah, and some of us have, you know, they, they end up breaking into this chorus, Glory to God, glory to God in the highest. They did it better than that. Handel's Messiah doesn't even pick up how great it was for the angels that had been able to be in the throne room of God to be able to see the great humiliation of Jesus, to leave his throne on high and his kingly throne, to come to this earth and to be born of a virgin and to be kept in a little lowly stall. They couldn't hold their peace. Would you? You see, now that we know the rest of the story, we might all join in with the angels. But on that night, the shepherds were like, whoa, what's going on with you guys? Some baby's born and that's going to be good enough? No, it was not just a baby being born. It was a savior. You see, God's great salvation is linked to this, and this is why glory comes out of it. Now, I want to be able to highlight a few things for you if you follow along. Uh, Why do we want to give glory? Why do we want to praise him? Well, first of all, Paul is telling us that it was generated by an amazing God. This great salvation plan did not uh, come about by some accident. It did not come about because they stumbled across some kind of archaeology dig, and, oh, they figured something out! Now, if you look here, you're going to find that the text of Scripture is crystal clear. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. When you start to digest this for a moment, wow. Well, I'm looking at this and saying the capabilities of God's mind. God's mind is the generator for all of this. This whole salvation plan was not something that, uh, that he just... Well, it is something that he just... Came up with. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that it was according to the counsel of his own will that, that he had great pleasure in being able to work this out that he was going to take people who deserved to die and go to hell and he was going to make them his. He was going to identify them as his children and he was going to take them home to spend eternity with him. If you come to Sunday school in the morning, we were looking at. at, uh, at John chapter 14, where Jesus told his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be too. Wow, it's pretty interesting. The capabilities of God's mind. There are, there are three things that are highlighted about God's mind. And it's kind of fascinating to me. I call it God's mind because you can see the word mind mentioned there. For who has known the mind of God, verse 34. You can see verse 34 pop up there. And you'll see that God's mind was where all of this started. Now, how did God come up with this? You know, he didn't do a build back better plan. And he didn't even have to try to make something great again. Because, my goodness, the world was condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one. So what did God do? What was going on in the mind of God? And the way that if you look here, you'll see that in verse 33. This is the apostle telling us, hey, everybody in Rome, this is what was going on in the mind of God. And he talks about two things in the first part of it. He talks about the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. If you look there at verse 33, he says the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. Now, those two things are in themselves enough to just think about. Is God wise? Does God know everything? Have you been able to hide some things from him? Do you think that if you close the doors to your closet that he doesn't know what's in there? You see, this is the interesting thing about uh, Paul is writing to the people in Rome and he says, this is about God. God has this richness uh, in fact, uh, when you look at it, some people want to say that he had riches as well as he has wisdom, as well as he has uh, this knowledge. I believe that when you read the actual Greek text, he actually is using the word riches to describe the other two, that the wisdom of God is like greater than riches, and the knowledge of God is, is richer far even than that. And the difference between knowledge and wisdom, do you know what the difference is? Well, you n- must not be very wise. You must not have all of that stuff because God takes all this data and with the wisdom that God has and he is able to weave it together and he plots out the plan of salvation. And it is so, so amazing that he uses the word bath in it. I mean, it's the Greek word, but it means depths. So it's like taking a bath. It's kind of like you're got diving under, diving deep into it. But if you, if you translate it into modern world, it's unfathomable. It's almost like you can, you can, you know, we could take a uh, go down seven miles in the Mariana Trench, way down below the surface of the water, and and man, it, the pressure is so great there, and everything else. But but that's trying to get to the depths. And what he's saying, t- telling us, is that God, in His plan of salvation, has got it deeper than you could ever figure out. And it's not just that he knows everything about everything. He knows where everybody is. He knows the timing of this, that, and everything else. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool how God even works with people to have advances in medicine, advances in chemistry, advances in technology. I mean, who would have ever thought that there would be a car that we could get in that you could even do... <claps> Are one of you driving one of those cars? It's really cool. You know what I'm talking about. Technology is so far advanced that, that these cars can drive themselves and stay between lanes and stay farther away from people. And you're just thinking, oh, let me tell you that God's wisdom and God's knowledge is so much greater, so much deeper, to use the Greek text. Now, he says that's one of the things that you got to pick up on is God gets the glory for this great salvation because he's an amazing God with wisdom and knowledge, but he also has this thing called judgment, the word krina in the text. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments? This is the one where I was just spending a lot of time on. How does God work things out? Does God just go on vacation and just let it all work out on its own? Sometimes you may feel like that. You petition God, you ask Him, you ask Him again, you ask Him more times than that, than the Jesus illustration where He says that that woman is, is so persistent with the earthly judge that the earthly judge says, Oh, you can have it, leave me alone. We may petition God like that too. But God's judgment means that He is free to do His holy will. He's free to answer yes, and he's free to answer no. There is no obligation on his part that he has to do things your way. Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar took a long time, seven years. He acted like an animal. And finally, when his senses came to him, what he understood was that the inhabitants of the earth are seen as nothing. And God does according to his own will in heaven as well as on earth. And none can even put their hand up and say, no way, stop. None can hold his hand back or question him why what have you done you see the judgments of god uh, according to our text here they are unsearchable this is because we think that some of god's judgments are not fair or they're not right they don't work out the way we want has anybody ever wronged you come on you gotta nod yes it's obviously people, even if they cut you off driving. You know what I'm talking about. When you, when you have a life that you're going on and you're trying to be a great neighbor, you're trying to be good, and then somebody ends up ruining it for you. They can make an accusation. They can get in your way. They can, they can actually take the last thing. On, on I mean, whatever it is that they do to hurt you and damage you and to mess your world up, you would, if you were God, I bet you you would make a judgment that they should get what they deserve. They wronged me. I'm going to wrong them. We might even take Hammurabi's code: an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. If they knock my tooth out, I'm going to knock their front tooth out. You see, we were talking about that with vengeance is God's, and that's in chapter uh, chapter nine a little bit later. Or excuse me, in, in chapter twelve, the next chapter. But in this particular case, the point of God's judgments, He chooses to do some things. Fifty years ago, there was a court case that happened, and, and uh, the people were, were wanting to be able to get an abortion. And they worked it through the court system, and they got up to the Supreme Court. And why did God allow them to make a, a ruling that we all know wasn't based in, 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 in any words in the Constitution? And they certainly wasn't in character with the Bible, which they had put their hand to swear on. How did God's judgments allow that? Why didn't God just get involved and, and, and change their mind? Why didn't he give them a, a majority, at least of, the, of those people in the robes, so that they wouldn't make such a bad decision? Now, here we are. I lived most of my lifetime thinking that we were stuck with this. In God's providence, he allowed these judgments to come to pass. And that's why we can't figure out, how did that work together for salvation? I'm going to tell you that maybe there wouldn't have been thousands of pro-life people. There wouldn't have been so many witnesses to folks who have unwanted and unplanned pregnancies. There's been a lot of, I mean, our baby bottles. I've got one right here. What does this money do? Oh, you could say, oh, it pays the salary of the staff that worked for the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center. But in reality, it enables those people to be there on the front lines to fight against the battle that, that the Satan is waging to deceive people. And the way they fight the battle is with truth. And it ultimately leads them to Jesus, who will set them free. Now, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's judgments... And then the other one is God's ways. God really does work it all together for good. We read about that in Romans 8. 28, just a couple chapters before this chapter 11. So the first thing you see is that God is an awesome God. The second thing which is very a small point, you can read it there in verse 34For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be, be repaid? If you follow along on this particular one you'll find out that that the, um, <laughs> that the mind of God was unknown it was unknown to man, it was unaided by man and it was unattained by man. Let me explain that to you very, very quickly. It was unknown to man. Nobody even knew what was in God's mind when he did this great salvation. Nobody. Not you or not me. God was was totally independent when he created his plan for his great salvation. And it was unaided by man. if you look at the next one, he says, who has been God's counselor? Well, he picks this up from Job, where in the, in the story of Job, if you're familiar with that text, some of the people are like, um, well, God must be needing some guidance because why would you hurt Job when Job has been so faithful? Job hasn't uttered a curse word. Job has stood true even when his wife told him not to. But they're all saying, do you really want to think that you can counsel God? Were you there at the beginning when he created it all in the space of six days and very good? You weren't there. So he says, it was unaided by man. The mind of God was untainted by man as well. In verse 35, he says, who gave a gift to God that God would have to repay him? This is kind of interesting because isn't that how you want to get things done? If you want the, the, uh, the people in Dover to do something that we like, what do you what do? You do? For, for those of you that want them to repeal the gun law that they just passed, what would you do? Okay. <laughs> hey there is going to be something that you can think. You can at least let them know of what you're thinking, or you can send them some letters. You can try to get a big petition with lots of names on it. You can actually go and stand with a placard in front of, uh, in front of their office. You can do a lot of things. Some people try to put money towards a political action committee who, who tries to take them out to lunch or tries to encourage them that if you will do this, then we'll try to get more votes for you so you can stay in office. There's lots of different things. When, you, when this text comes to me and I'm like, wow, there's no human who has been able to manipulate God. Nobody has given a gift to God that God feels like he has to give him some favor. Did you know that God is totally free from any manipulation? No matter how hard you could try to get God to do something, he doesn't have to. And that's one of the beautiful things about this great salvation. He didn't favor the Jews because the Jews did anything. And he didn't send Gentile, uh, he didn't send apostles to the Gentiles because the Gentiles did anything to get his favor. God did it because he chose to. And that was the second point of the sermon, is we give God this glory because it was untainted by anything that man brought. And the third point, as I wrap up, is we give God the glory for this great salvation because it satisfies God. I've had to wrestle with this one the longest. If you look there in verse 36, it's just a simple three prepositional phrases. For from him and through him and to him are all things. What does that mean? Is it just a cool device? Well, let me unpack it a little bit for you. Because when you look at these, these particular texts, you're going to find out that, that of him, it means has to do with the past. Through him has to do with the present. Are you figuring it out? To him has to do with the future. So in a sense, what you're finding here is that one of the ways that this, this threefold phrase does, of him, through him, and to him, deals with, uh, with time. That God's wonderful plan of salvation deals with what has already happened, what is happening, and what will happen. In other words, all things, is the next word that you find in that text, from him and through him and to him are panta, all things. Is there any maverick molecule in this universe that doesn't submit to the authority of King Jesus? When you think about this for a moment, R.C. Sproul made made that quote, He said, no, you can't, you can't go anywhere where things are free, you know, like a, a, uh, a God-free zone where God's laws and God's rules and all those things don't apply. It's not true. And so when you look here, he says all things, past, present, and future, are connected to God in this great salvation. There is nothing that has been able to thwart it. Now, some of us would look back in our lifetime, I've only been here 55 years or so, and there have been some things that I thought, wow, they put a big roadblock up to Christianity. You know, and you look at some of, the, some of the folks that claim to be Christians, they've written books and they've done all this stuff, uh, and, and then all of a sudden they turn away from Christianity and they say, oh, I'm not a believer in that anymore. It's been weird when you look at it and you're saying, but you said all these great things and then you're not there. It's like they changed their minds. It's, it's very interesting that God is not thwarted with people pretending to be Christians and proving they're not. Matthew 7, he says, there's going to be a lot of them that say, Lord, Lord, look at all these religious things I've done, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But you see, that doesn't thwart his plans for his great salvation, because it's of him, through him, and, and to him. Let me unpack it a little different besides just time. The of him, it, it, it has the of or from God. And this goes back to my first point that I made. God's great salvation plan comes from God. It's of God. It's connected to God. In fact, it's so intimate with God that you can't even separate God from his great salvation. You can't. It is a part of when we talk about God and we talk about a good God, immediately you're talking about a God who loves and a God who saves. You can't split that. So this whole amazing thing with the the wisdom and the knowledge and and the judgments and the ways of God, all of that is of God. Now the second part here is through him. This is where you get the, if you put the gospel arrows up, you'll be able to see that it's all through Christ. Just because God has it in his mind that he's going to save to the uttermost, it didn't mean you were saved. Jesus had to leave his throne on high and come to the earth. And that's why the praise on the angels, because the gospel implementation was starting to take place. And they could see that the Savior, the Lamb of God, was now here. And they said, glory to God in the highest. You can see how he came and he went to the cross. And from the cross to the grave and from the grave to the sky. And we all sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. You can see how the gospel had to be mediated by the one who alone was worthy. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, the last point there is to him. Uh, This is where I use the word to satisfy. Because why did God go to all this trouble? Did he do it because he had a to-do list up in heaven? Got that one done, got that one done, got that one done. He just didn't do it because he could do it. There was something about it, and you read about it in Ephesians 1, uh, the first chapter, verses, you know, all the blessings that come from heaven. But it's according to the counsel of his own will. He foreordained these things to come to pass because it pleased him. He wanted it. This way. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, the authority to say, This is my covenant community. I'm always fascinated with this. The angels over Bethlehem, I conclude with the here, the angels over Bethlehem praised God. And if I go to Revelation chapter 19, at the end of the Bible, you're going to find that the angels praise again. But this time, a few more people join with us. Revelation chapter 19. And if you have it in your Bibles, you might look at it. It's pretty interesting how right towards the end, you have the same kind of doxology that kicks in. I'm going to read it for you. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19. He says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And they were saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power They all belong to our great God. For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the prostitute. In other words, he has judged those who have been faking it. The final judgment. You see, when you get to the end of the story, you're going to find that you don't want to be on the wrong side receiving those judgments. You want to be on the right side praising God. And it's pretty interesting how he avenges. Now, if you look at verses three and, uh, excuse me, in verses four and five, This is where we join in. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and they, it's not that they tripped. Okay. They were so amazed. They got down on their knees and they worshiped our great God who at that point was seated on the throne and they all joined in with that great multitude. Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne a voice came saying, "Praise our God, all you servants, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great, praise our God. I want to tell you that that's where I wrap things up. God's great salvation is not something to just be um, dozed off at. Okay, if I take you to Hebrews chapter two verse three, you can see how the author says that that this, this whole salvation is not just a little thing. It is a great thing. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect what God has done in his greatness? This great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested by others. He says, we're making it known to you. There's such a great salvation. What is this salvation? It is Jesus Christ doing something for you that you couldn't do for you. All we like sheep had gone astray. We'd turned everyone to his own way. But God the Father found a way that your sin and my sin could be laid upon him. And when he was put on the cross of Calvary, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that the sin of our lives was put on him and paid in full, This great salvation is incomparable. If you watch any Marvel movie, or if you watch anything that they're showing, um, any Star Wars thing, any any show that's got got a little semblance, they always try to bring some salvation, some kind of remedy, some kind of fix. But there's nothing that compares. Nothing compares to what Jesus did when he planned out of his wisdom and knowledge and according to his judgments and the way he worked it all out, making the way, there's nothing to be compared. It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's unreplaceable. It's something that he gave for you. I was going to say it's irrevocable what God has done for us. Do you know this, Christ? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. Lord, I pray that praise would be on our lips, that we would not just be put to sleep with this, but that we would be energized by it. Paul saw such a great salvation that even some of these wayward Jews, people that had been living and deserving judgment and condemnation, God was going to extend grace to them While they were yet in sins and trespasses, he was going to extend an undeserved favor. His mercies were going to be given, and that is why in the next chapter, he begs Christians, he begs everybody listening, I beg of you that in response to these wonderful mercies that made me say, praise God, that you would do the next thing, which is live the Christian life, presenting your body a living and holy sacrifice. Lord, the only reason we serve God is because you first loved us. And I pray that if there's somebody here today that for the first time understands the love of God, I pray that they'll pray a prayer after this manner. Lord, I see, I see your great salvation that while I deserve judgment and punishment, you raised up a witness. It was a part of your plan. You sent somebody with a messenger, someone with beautiful feet according to Romans 10 who shared with me the good news. And told me about your great Savior who died for me. Lord, I trust Jesus as my Savior. And that's why we all can pray in Jesus' name.